About two months certainly ago, during the beginning days of a retreat, a 10-day retreat in Italy, one of the retreatants asked an interesting question, namely, how do we learn about the night? Uh, no, sorry, how do we learn about the mind? And certainly, so the topic for today is going to be just that. How do we learn about the mind, or to put it differently, discovering the mind, discovering its nature? Now, how do we find out about the nature of the of the mind? One way to proceed would be that we simply go and read books or read the modern neuroscientific articles about various aspects related to the mind. But this approach, in the end, will just give us theoretical and a theoretical understanding and not really a direct experience. Among all neuroscientists, one could certainly probably say that the Buddha was certainly the first and pretty revolutionary. And so he recommended rather than using modern technology like functional magnetic resonance imaging or other modern scientific equipment, he recommended what is known in the Pali scriptural language as Chittanupasana Satyanapadana, namely a mindful contemplation of the mind, as well as Dhammanupasana Satipatthana, a mindful contemplation of Dhammas. Now, the Buddha has given instructions in this certain regard, and certainly they are as certain follows. Namely, and how, you know, oh, retreatants, does a retreatant abide contemplating mind as mind? Here, a retreatant understands mind affected by lust as mind affected by lust, and a mind unaffected by lust as a mind unaffected by, mind, uh, by lust. He or she understands mind affected by hate as a mind affected by hate and a mind unaffected by hate as a mind unaffected by hate. Then the same thing for a mind affected by delusion and unaffected by delusion. Furthermore, one understands contracted mind, a mind contracted by sloth and torpor, as contracted mind and a distracted mind, namely in which restlessness and remorse certainly have arisen as a distracted mind. One understands 
an exalted mind pertaining to jhana as exalted mind and an unexalted mind as unexalted mind. One understands a surpassed mind as surpassed mind and an unsurpassed mind as unsurpassed mind. One understands a concentrated mind as concentrated mind and an unconcentrated mind as unconcentrated mind. One understands the liberated mind as liberated mind and an unliberated mind as unliberated. Now, these are the instructions and Satna this then is followed by you know, a passage Satna that's uh, is similar for um, also other you know, Satipatthana instructions and it says in this way in regard to the mind one abides contemplating the mind internally externally internally and externally one abides contemplating the nature of arising, the nature of the passing away, and of both arising and passing away in regard to the mind. Mindfulness that there is a mind is established in the retreat and to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness and one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That is how, in regard to the mind, one abides contemplating the mind. Now, these certain instructions are presented in a pretty you know, structured manner. And on the one hand side, we have the uh, eight cases of ordinary states of mind, namely a mind associated with lust, free of lust, a mind associated with anger, free of anger, and so on. And then we have another eight so-called higher or lofty states of mind, and those are your great or exalted mind, and then the unsurpassable mind, the concentrated mind, and the liberated mind. Now the term, just for better understanding, the term exalted or great relates to the development of absorption and is, for instance, used in the connection with the Brahma-Vihara meditation practice, namely the divine abidings. And then we, uh, the Buddha speaks of the unsurpassable, the surpassable and the unsurpassable uh, mind. So a surpassable mind is uh, a mind that occurs as part of uh, the jhana practice. So a particular jhana is uh, present and uh, a lower one, and one can then go beyond it with uh, further training. So if one experiences the second jhana, then one can surpass that and then experience the third jhana. However, the fourth jhana is considered to be the unsurpassable, consisting of equanimity and mindfulness. One cannot go any further than this. 
from a Vipassana point of view, this unsurpassable, unsurpassable mind also refers to the state of full awakening. So, two meanings here. Now, the concentrated mind is or refers to states of concentration that arise either in samatha meditation, so meditation of calm, or during vipassana meditation, meditation of insight. And then, finally, we have the liberated, the unliberated mind, and liberated mind, and here the liberated mind refers to the temporary or permanent experience of mental freedom from defilements in insight and certain calm meditation. So this is just for a better understanding of the instructions themselves. Now, When we start as part of our meditation practice, we start paying close attention to whatever occurs, then we find that there are not only physical phenomena, but there are also mental phenomena occurring. And with regard to those mental phenomena, we might then make various discoveries. For one thing, we might find that or how easily the mind reacts to something. So, in the face of the slightest unpleasant experience, disliking occurs. In the face of just the slightest desirable, pleasant experience, liking occurs. And so this shows how easily the mind is certainly affected when encountering a greed-inducing object, greed arises in the absence of mindfulness and whenever we come across a hatred or ill-will-inducing object, then this ill-will will arise again in the absence of mindfulness. The same thing goes certainly for ignorance. So then we do not know the true nature of an object. Now, as we carefully observe mental phenomena, we might further find how quickly the mind can change from one state to another, from one mental state to another one. And so it could be within just a snap of fingers that previously the mind was, let's say, in a happy state, and all of a sudden we find it's in an unhappy state. Or all of a sudden it changes from a somewhat calm state to 
a restless certain state, or mm, we see something that certainly we disagree with, and certainly then we might certainly have immediately we might certainly form a certain opinion about this certain particular situation. And certainly, so this certainly we this very fact that the mind is so changeable needs to be well understood, and in particular, the danger then also comes certainly with this. So in no time can the mind switch from a wholesome state to an unwholesome state, or to an ethically variable state. So, in the absence of mindfulness, this may uh, have really serious consequences. So, it could happen that all of a sudden, upon seeing something disagreeable, there is a strong manifestation of ill will. Or, upon seeing something very desirable, all of a sudden there's a strong greed arising. Now, what we may also find out about the nature of the mind is how quickly it functions or operates. And the Buddha has certainly expressed certainly this as certainly follows that he says within a snap of fingers or the blinking of foot near the eyes, millions if not billions moments of consciousness arise and pass away one after another. What we may further find is when we take a closer look at the mind are its weaknesses in the case of the untrained mind. And then we might discover how unreliable the mind is, how fickle it is, and certainly even painful and more painful than uh, even the worst physical pain. And the mind certainly can be said to be like a volcano, namely in that it can erupt certainly any time and can create a lot of damage. Now, even though we might be holding a PhD, we might still suffer from much wandering mind. We might certainly think that we we've learned to think logically. Yet in meditation practice, we might discover that certainly the mind is not necessarily always operating in a logical manner.
We might also now discover the weakness of fitness of the mind in the sense that certain of the body is in good shape, well trained, certain through um, engaging in athletics or you know, various other you know, sports certain activities, and yet we find ourselves certainly shedding tears, you know, becoming sad or running out of energy. And we might certainly further say that certainly we are pure, that the mind is pure, yet we spend our certain backbiting. Or we might think highly of our own mind to sooner or later find that the mind easily gets afraid. So the Buddha has certainly described quite a number of those characteristics of the defiled and untrained mind. And certainly for you to also discover those over, uh, over time. Now, there are some real practical ways to learn about the nature of the mind. And one very simple way of doing this is, and this is in, in line with the instructions from the Satipatthana Sutta and certainly the, uh, the general part, namely to pay attention to the presence or absence condition of a particular mental state or mental object. So simply, and to when restlessness is there, to know that restlessness is present. And when restlessness is absent, to know that restlessness is absent. And certainly then we might find instead calmness is present. So then to know simply the presence of certain calmness. Now, a beginning retreatant might be very familiar with the experience of restlessness, but may not be so familiar with the experience of calmness, because this is not uh, necessarily our ordinary experience. And one might think of oneself as being a rather calm person, but suddenly then it's suddenly in intensive practice already within a couple of days that after having overcome the hindrances, one finds that suddenly the mind suddenly gets into a state of deep peace, calmness, serenity, uh, tranquility, stillness. And it is only then that one realizes, oh, what I've experienced for the most part was just earlier on, was certain restlessness. And so one realizes, oh, there is indeed much more than just restlessness, but there's real potential for calmness.
the same presence and absence condition might certainly be very useful when it comes certainly to the mental factor of equanimity or neutrality of the mind. So, as a non-meditator or beginning meditator, are we likely to right away experience equanimity? Mm. Not. So, this is highly unlikely. And at that point, all we can acknowledge is an absence of equanimity and at that point not even quite knowing what equanimity is all about. We may have some concept about it, but certainly that might not really reflect reality. Now, after maybe 15, 10, 15 days of intensive practice, the experience of equanimity might arise um, in our meditation practice. So, quite naturally, as a result of our meditation, equanimity comes up for the first time, or becomes, let's say, to be more precise, becomes certain prominent, comes certain to the foreground. And it is at that point that we realize, oh, this is what equanimity is all about. And then we realize the presence of equanimity. And so then having come to know or having experienced equanimity for the first time, we realize indeed prior to the experience there was an absence of equanimity. So by either knowing the presence or the absence condition, we can already mm, mm, uh, learn something about Satna, the mind. Now, as Satna, the second part of Satna, the instructions, also makes it clear, by simply paying attention to the arising and the disappearing of a mental state or a mental factor, uh, we can learn plenty of things about Satna, the nature of the mind. And it can be fascinating to see a mental state like calmness gradually arising in the mind, or maybe arising a little bit and then fading away arising again a little bit more and then a fading away. And mm, one gradually gets a sense of oh, calmness is in the process of uh, uh, forming. And certainly then to also pay close attention to the disappearing of this of a particular mental state, such as sudden calmness, but it could be any other mental state. Now, for those of us who would sit the last sitting of the day, there is surely the experience of fitness, sloth, and torpor. And certainly, so to clear again and again, you know, see 
how or to pay attention to how this sloth and torpor is actually arising, how it is gradually coming in. And sometimes this approaching sloth and torpor, the approach can be rather slow and gradual. At other times, it can be extremely fast, so fast that suddenly we have nothing left but suddenly to endure the nodding of the head. It's just too late. And so, again, with the sloth and the torpor, it might be fascinating to watch how sloth and torpor that is present, how that gradually subsides. And then some more vigor, some more energy comes into the mind. Now, there's still other ways of learning something about the mind. Namely, first of all, by basically doing by basically doing a survey of what is happening in the mind. Or by taking stock of what suddenly comes up, like a, a, a storekeeper uh, uh, does suddenly uh, take stock at the end of a year or at the end of a month or so. And so, so in other words, to you know, do the who's, who is who in terms of mental states. So for you know, a brand new you know, retreatant, he or she may not be very familiar with all those many different mental states. But practice will bring about, at times, the arising of sloth and torpor, at other times, this state of, let's say, clarity of mind and that goes along with the faith. And at other times, greed might be there or maybe... Uh, some happiness might arise, joy might arise, and so on and so forth. So over time, we gradually get to discover, oh, this is such and such a mental state, oh, yeah, this must be yeah, then yeah, maybe uh, a case of fitness doubt, and so on and so forth. Now, as we uh, keep taking stock of what actually occurs in the mind, we gradually see that these mental states are all the same or different. They're different. And they're different in one, but not only, way, namely as to their ethical quality or a quality as being either wholesome or unwholesome. And over time, we gradually then recognize that the hindrances, for instance, the hindrance of sense desire of ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and certain remorse or worry and skeptical doubt, that those are unwholesome mental states. 
And then, observing them again and again, it becomes obvious that they really do not lead to our happiness. They don't make uh, you know, make us a happy day, but rather you know, they bring about a lot of uh, well unsatisfactoriness, a lot of frustration. Now, with this kind of a direct experience, one then might relate to the definition that is suddenly given by Venerable Buddha Kosa in the Atatna Salini, where he says that unwholesomeness, akusala in the Pani scripture language, has faultiness and bad results as its characteristic. Now, with the arising of an experience of, let's say, calmness and faith accompanied by clarity of mind, and certainly then maybe mindfulness is certainly there, and intuitive wisdom arises. With the arising of these sudden states, we realize there is no unsatisfactoriness that goes along. And certainly these states rather make, do they make for our unhappiness or happiness? Happiness. So they then produce positive, wholesome results. And with this kind of a direct experience of wholesome mental states, when we then hear you know, the definition by you know, elder or commentator Acharya Buddha Gosa, namely you know, that wholesomeness, kusala, has certain you know, faultless and happy faultlessness and uh, uh, happy results as a characteristic, then uh, this certainly starts to make a lot of fitness sense. And it is by experiencing oftentimes first an unwholesome mental state and then maybe a few hours later or a day or two later some wholesome states that through this contrast first unwholesome then wholesome that we see the difference between the two. Yes, Jim? Just a point of clarification. Can one say that um, a wholesome state always is accompanied by mindfulness. Yes. And an unwholesome state is not. There's yes. an absence of mindfulness. Yes, right. Yet there's an experiencing of the, that the mind undergoes in the unwholesome state. I'm experiencing that unwholesome state, mm -hmm. but without mindfulness. Uh, is yes. that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And so, strictly speaking, the mind is operating at such high speed, it's certainly the memory of that early experience that suddenly then is being seen with mindfulness by a following moment of consciousness associated with mindfulness. Now, that certainly seems to be the explanation. So, 
Anyways, it's a common feature of the mind that certain understanding, our understanding of the nature of the mind uh, occurs through various contrasts or uh, pairs of opposition. As Sutner pointed Sutner out, so you know, restlessness versus certain calmness, or um, and sloth and torpor versus certain effort, viria, or maybe confusion versus knowing the nature of objects, or let's say, ill will versus loving-kindness and certain patience. Now, when we deeply go into our meditation practice and carefully observe what is going in the mind, over time we might, and so this does take some, some practice, we might start to notice certain sequences. We might notice how um, you know, there's a certain development uh, that seems to be repeating itself. And so, you know, first there's one factor, and then this first factor leads to the arising of a different factor, and this then again leads to the arising of another factor. Can you think of any such serial and causal development in terms of mental states or mental objects? What's that? Yes, the seven factors of awakening or enlightenment. And Satna, they uh, are as Satna follows, namely, first Satna, the enlightenment factor of mindfulness, then the factor of investigation of states, Dhamma, Vijaya, Sambhojanga, then the awakening factor of effort, Viriya, Sambhojanga, then of joy, Piti Sambhojanga, then of tranquility, Pasadi Sambhojanga, and then as the second last we have concentration, and finally of equanimity. So it is when mindfulness is present in a relatively continuous manner that we start to make discoveries. So wisdom is there. And suddenly we start to investigate what is actually going on. And suddenly, with this we can say mindfulness is the first factor and strong mindfulness. And this then leads to the arising of the awakening factor of investigation of states. Now, as we are having some good results or getting some good results, energy arises, we feel it's working. And so, uh, then, uh, so we exert, so we have more energy available, and suddenly this suddenly then leads to an arising of joy or rapture. So we're actually seeing something. We actually see the nature of the prominent certain objects.
Now, this sudden rapture will gradually, you know, first or at first it's a bit coarse and will gradually become uh, more and more refined, and suddenly will then quite naturally lead to the arising. Uh, first of bodily stillness, and then it will lead to the arising of the stillness of the mind, basadi, or tranquility. And this tranquility of the mind then is a prerequisite for the arising of concentration. So with a mind that has, in a mindset in which mental disquiet has subsided, then the mind can become one-pointed, concentrated, unified. And so at that certain point, then also there is certain equanimity towards all formations, and certain formations are viewed equally. So the awakening factor of equanimity is also there. And these awakening factors, when they arise, let's say, in the higher insight knowledges, they, when they first arise, they tend to uh, arise in a pretty you know, systematic manner, one by one. And with the arising of, uh, mm, let's say, the first one and then the second awakening factor, when the second one comes into foreground, it doesn't mean that the first one falls away. It stays. It's just the second one that comes into the foreground. And then the third one arises, and the other, the first two still you know, remain, and suddenly the you know, third one being in the foreground, and so on and so forth. So until all of them have arisen in the stream of consciousness, and until all of them are of equal strength and suddenly well balanced. Now, there is another well-known series of mental factors that are connected by cause and effect. And that series usually consists of just the five hindrances. So, Oftentimes, there's the arising of greed, of sense desire, and uh, not getting what one wants, having to be mindful. The mind uh, uh, stages a protest, and (laughs) and then ill will arises. And eventually one realizes, oh, I better be mindful of this ill will. And then the mind goes, okay, so if I'm not allowed to stage a protest, then I just take up another form of disagreement, namely, I go to sleep. And... (laughs) And so then sloth and torpor sets in. Now, sooner or later, one's meditation teacher will say, please don't waste your time just sleeping there. And suddenly, raise your effort, and with this you might increase your effort, and suddenly with this the sloth and torpor will subside. But then the mind can be quite quite tricky, and... 
and then its uh, the mind come up with another uh, response and this time around uh, it then ends up uh, being very restless and starts worrying about this and uh, that as a way of uh, getting away from uh, the practice now eventually mindfulness will be directed certainly to it and certainly then the mind comes up with yet certainly another trick and this time around it starts doubting what am i doing here some existential questions come up fundamental questions about the practice is this all of this really working Aren't we just wasting our time here? I might as well go and hit the beach somewhere. Now, actually, the series does this series end with the arising of footness skeptical doubt? It does not. So then, how does it go on? Or it might cycle back. Yes, it might do that. Or else, if one has managed to overcome all of those certain five hindrances, and one has also gone beyond physical pains and aches, then a sense of gladness arises. Pamuja in the Pali scriptural language. And which is certainly a milder form of fatna joy. And so, just that uh, one is glad, the mind is glad that finally one doesn't have to deal with the hindrances anymore and uh, with those certain terrible pains and aches. And that's, you know, that's a natural, you know, natural development, it makes a lot of fitness sense. And then, based on this certain initial gladness, then a stronger form arises, namely, it comes in the form of joy, full-fledged joy, beauty. Now, that beauty, in turn, the beauty gradually becomes more refined, and then turns suddenly into tranquility. The tranquility then turns into happiness, the happiness into concentration, and the concentration leads to the arising of wisdom. So, in part, there's a little bit of an overlap there with the awakening factors. Now, a somewhat certainly similar a series can be experienced during what is known as the imperfections of insight. So, you know, this happens during the early stages of the fourth insight knowledge, the knowledge of the fast arising, passing way of formations, Uriyabhyanyana. And so, you know, meditators are prone to, or at least some, are prone to see some beautiful colors arising, a variety of light or illumination experiences occurring. And this phenomenon then might be succeeded by an experience of a really keen and unerring, incisive footnote knowledge or wisdom. So the mind clearly understands and strongly understands what is suddenly happening. This in turn then oftentimes leads to the arising of joy, 
again followed by tranquility followed by happiness followed by based on especially based on the um, the tranquility the happy and uh, uh, the joy the tranquility and the happiness based on this well what arises faith faith in the practice and this is very natural so you have all these wonderful experiences and you think wow this is really far out and so and then you really feel compelled to go on with your meditation practice and you plan the remainder of your your retreat or you might even plan further ahead certain future retreats in the near future and certainly some even start planning their career as a meditation teacher now those are just certain aspects or manifestation of uh, um, you know, this faith now based on this again and it makes a lot of sense one is more prepared certainly to uh, exert effort and the energy comes certainly naturally and so one you know, utilizes it and certainly this certainly then oftentimes you know, leads on to a type of mindfulness that is noticeably sharp and rather quick and deeply penetrating into objects. And eventually, equanimity towards certain all or towards formations will arise. So, just a pretty well defined series of fitness steps of mental factors that come up one by one. Now, it's not necessarily that each and every retreat is going to experience the full series, but at least a few of those. Now, there's another very clear serial and causal development that is taking place in the practice, and it's hard to deny, namely the, the arising of the insight knowledges themselves. So those stages of intuitive understanding, a certain, you know, with each and in, every insight knowledge, there's some new understanding that suddenly comes up. And these insight knowledges don't arise in a haphazard manner. They do arise in a pretty systematic order. Now, for a beginning retreat, and this may not be so obvious, not so you know, tangible, but if you keep with your, if you stay with your practice, and, and you become more and more experienced, then gradually over time you'll see the natural development. You learn to distinguish those different you know, stages of insight. And certainly then they just become a second nature. It's part of your human existence and there's nothing unusual about them. Now, as Satna discussed Satna earlier on, we may learn a lot about or through pairs of opposites. So there's no need to go into this again. And then in certain discourses, the Buddha speaks 
in connection with mental factors of their dangers, their gratification and escape from mental states. So, in the case of threatening calmness, what might be the most imminent danger? from a practical, experiential point of view, from a yogi's point of view? Calmness, yes. Sleepiness, there you go. So, um, calmness comes up, it is such a peaceful state that suddenly then a thought arises in the mind and then the thought goes unnoticed, it leads on to another one, and yet another one. Gradually it suddenly turns into daydreaming, and the daydreaming turns into sleepiness. So, even though it started with calmness, and calmness is a wholesome mental state, we find, if we're not attentive, we find ourselves suddenly ending up in or experiencing sloth and torpor. So that would be a rather immediate danger in the case of calmness. And so in the case of joy, too much joy, especially during the higher insight knowledges, will also not be very useful or helpful for your practice because your joy has a somewhat agitating quality to it and suddenly then it suddenly interferes with a calm and suddenly clear observation of a prominent certain object. So just to know this and suddenly then not to get suddenly too carried away by joy. Now, the gratification in each of these certain cases, or for calmness, it's just the experience of a wholesome, wholesome state. And with joy, it's the same thing. And as for the escape from those states, and in particular, unwholesome mentalness, so maybe to... Uh, elaborate a little bit on gratification. So maybe there is an exper- some desirable experience. You, you know, come across a lot of you know, chills and thrills in you know, the body. It's rather you know, you know, soothing, and suddenly then um, a sense of uh, uh, you know, pleasure arises. So that's your you know, gratification. There and then, based on this, some happiness, worldly happiness, arises. As for the escape from mental states, well, with regard to, in particular, unwholesome mental states, but also wholesome mental states, the ultimate escape lies in the experience of nibbana. When where all of these certain states um, just don't suddenly come up or are not part of our experience, and certainly so to know these various aspects. Now, as we explore the mind in its many facets again and again, we might 
uh, further learn to distinguish between, let's say, a weak state of calmness and a strong state of calmness, or a weak and rather fragile equanimity versus moderately strong equanimity versus a really full-fledged equanimity. So just to, you know, to you know, these mental states come in different ways. They are not all the same. And so the intensity, their intensity, their strength over time may vary. And so just to be mindful of these certain things. Now, in connection with the contemplation of the mind, when we apply the instructions as recorded, the Buddha's instructions as recorded in the Satipatthana Sutta, important is that we observe for mental formations in a non-reactive manner. And the reason for this lies in a passage, or the explanation is certainly given in a passage from the Anguttara Nikaya, volume 5, section 39. And there it explains. O, retreat, o retreatants, there are things to be abandoned with the body, not with speech. There are things to be abandoned with speech, not body. Things to be abandoned neither with body nor with speech, but by insight on seeing them and certain so by insight on seeing you know, the lust, by seeing the delusion, by seeing the you know, grudge and selfishness and wrongful envy and certain so on and so forth. So when it comes to unwholesome, harmful bodily and verbal conduct, you know, the Buddha advises stop that right away, abandon it, let go of it. But it's not the, it's, uh, the same instruction for mental states. And so the approach there is rather one of mindfully observing what is actually happening, carefully studying the various mental states, getting to know them, and it is in this process of gradually understanding their nature that we gain some control over them, and then they lose certainly their power over the mind. And we are less and less a victim of those mental states. So our intuitive way of dealing with un, especially unwholesome mental states, namely trying to get rid of them and not so, you know, wanting to pay attention to them, is actually a pretty lousy 
approach. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't lead us anywhere. So let's say if anger arises and we simply decide to get up and go outside and do it and read a book or so, well, with this we haven't learned anything. But if we say anger has arisen, too bad, I'll you know, try to make the best out of this and I'll face the anger, I'll boldly observe it in all its different facets, then we're really learning something. And the next time around, you know, when the anger arises, you know, we're already in a much better position you know, to know how to deal with it. We won't be perfect yet, but so, you know, at least on the right you know, track. So, the first and you know, foremost uh, you know, approach towards mental states uh, is really one of insight, of mindful observation, contemplation. And um, you might object and say, well, what certainly should I do if certainly some extreme fear has arisen? And it seems certainly to be beyond ordinary mindfulness. In this case, you can then apply other methods such as maybe intentionally such as engaging in loving-kindness meditation or such as intentionally focusing your attention on some bodily formation. This will keep your your mind busy and away from the fear. Or, sorry, or simply that you get up and do some continuous walking meditation. But this is just the second line of foot and defense. So the first line is always to really squarely face an object, a difficult mental state, but also hold some mental states to get to know them really well. Now, allow me to conclude today's Satna Dhamma talk on how to learn about the nature of the mind or discovering the mind by wishing may you see your mindfulness practice as a tremendous and precious opportunity to make great discoveries about the nature of the mind and thus may you gradually learn to transform it, may it become increasingly pure and ultimately may it lead to the realization of the peace of Nibbana. And certainly this is it for now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.